This is Workers' Comp Matters, hosted by attorney Alan S. Pierce, the only legal talk network program that focuses entirely on the people and the law in workers' compensation cases. Nationally recognized trial attorney, expert, and author, Alan S. Pierce is a leader committed to making a difference when workers' comp matters. Welcome to Legal Talk Network and our show, Workers' Comp Matters. I'm your host, Alan Pierce. I practice workers' comp law in Salem, Massachusetts, with the law firm of Pierce, Pierce, and Napolitano, where we concentrate on the representation of injured workers and their families, primarily in workers' compensation claims and Social Security disability claims. Today, our show comes from the annual convention of WILIG, the Workers' Injury Law and Advocacy Group. We are broadcasting today from the Bacara Resort in Santa Barbara, California. And we have a guest for today's show, Steve E. Brown, PLC, Westlake Village, uh, California. Steve is an attorney who represents injured workers. He's a graduate of Columbia University, has his uh, law degree from the University of Southern California. He's a member of a variety of bar associations, including Willig, the California Employment Lawyers Association, the American Association for Justice, just to name a few. Steve's topic today is workers' compensation claims under the Federal Workers' Compensation Act, or FECA, Federal Employees' Compensation Act, administered by the Office of Workers' Compensation Programs, OWCP. There are so many acronyms in (laughs) our field that uh, it's hard to keep up. So, Steve, welcome to Workers' Comp Matters. Thank you, Alan. And as I mentioned, most of us who do workers' compensation as a practice deal with state-based workers' compensation laws and claims. And we represent injured workers who work in private employment or municipal state governmental employment. However, as we all know, there is a whole separate body of law that covers federal employees. So why don't you just give us briefly an overview of who is covered, the jurisdictional requirements, and things of that nature. Yes, so the Federal Employees Compensation Act uh, covers all civilian government employees, non-military, not contractors, but people who actually work for the government. So, for example, anybody who works for any executive agency or the other two branches of government, legislative or judicial Uh, For example, the judge who was shot over in Arizona when Gabby Giffords was shot, his widow is getting benefits under this law because he was considered in the course and scope of his employment when he was meeting with her on that day when he was killed. So a lot of people that you wouldn't think of are actually covered by this law. I know from my experience, most of the people who call my office seeking representation either work for the U.S. Postal Service (laughs) or the local Veterans Administration hospitals. They seem to be the largest of the federal employers, at least in the metropolitan Boston area, even though obviously there's pockets of all the other agencies. As a matter of practice, I don't take those cases. I used to, um, and I know, and I'd like you to explain how and why there is such a narrow uh, practice and number of practitioners who specialize, uh, specialize or represent these types of workers. The system, the government system is uh, unique in that there is no judicial review of anything that the Department of Labor uh, decides on these cases. So uh, many of the typical uh, legal skills that we learn in law school you can't use because you can't go to court. So it's a purely administrative practice. Um, You find yourself uh, trying to convince a claims examiner who works for the Department of Labor that 
this is a claim that they should grant. There are appeals processes within the Department of Labor, but you can never go outside of labor, and that creates some, uh, some, some problems. So would you agree that the fundamental underpinnings of the federal workers' comp system is similar, if not identical, to the state systems? That is, it is an exclusive remedy, which means that in exchange for getting these benefits, the federal employee who is injured at work, even as a result of the fault or negligence of the employer, uh, can not bring a civil action or a tort suit and must rely on the workers' comp benefits. Oh, yeah. It's, it's the exclusive remedy just like in the state systems, right? And like the state systems, um, I then would assume that the benefit levels are defined and, in a sense, limited. What are the benefits and how might they differ from states? Well, government employees are all paid under a system of schedules. So, for example, a GS-2 employee is one of the lowest paid. Uh, GS-15, uh, 16, 17, these are higher paid employees. So that the top that you can receive from uh, FICA, the Federal Employees Compensation Act, is the top pay of a GS-15, which is a middle-level, upper-middle-level manager. Um, and the lowest you can get is, a, is the lowest pay of a GS-2, which would be a clerk. So a postal worker who is – is the postal worker's benefit dependent on the average weekly earning or is yes. it the annual earning? Uh, well, it's the same. You know, with, with federal employees, they, they all work – with the Postal Service, they do have overtime, but overtime is not included in the worker's comp- computation. So you simply look at the – they have PS levels, which is similar to the GS. So uh, typical carriers are P, P5, P6. Uh, PS6, and so that employee might get forty, fifty thousand dollars a year, and the benefits are based on either two thirds or three quarters of that gross what, pay. What criteria depends on the, the person the two? making two thirds or, or three quarters? If you have a dependent, which is defined as either a spouse uh, living with you or a dependent child or a dependent parent, there's a whole bunch of categories of people. But basically, if you have a dependent, you get the higher three quarter level. Are the benefits uh, free of federal or state income tax? Yes, they are. Is there a duration? No, there is not. There's no time limit, dollar limit, age limit on these benefits. Is there a distinction between total disability and partial disability? Well, sure. Factually, if the employee can go back to work and the doctor says you can work, say, four hours a day, and the, doc- and the, and the uh, employee goes back to work for four hours, then typically the Department of Labor will pay the other four hours. I mean, two-thirds or three-quarters. What, right. what if the medical evidence is the uh, worker is capable of working modified duty or part-time hours, and the employer doesn't have that available? Or there's a disagreement. The, um, the injured worker doesn't feel he can. Is there a mechanism to adjudicate or determine a partial rate as opposed to a total rate? Yes, federal employees cannot uh, refuse suitable part-time or lower-paid jobs. So, for example, even if it's not their regular job or their regular hours or even their regular location necessarily, if the employer has something that's available for them and they can do it according to the medical evidence, then if the employer offers it, then the Department of Labor will decide whether that's suitable and once it's found to be suitable, then the employee must go back to work or forfeit his benefits. And what about the uh, alternative scenario where there is no suitable work, despite the fact that there is a capacity to do modified work if it were available? What happens to the worker in that situation? Once a claim is accepted, the Department of Labor has the uh, burden of proof to show that the person is no longer totally disabled. But total disability means that you can't 
earn the wages that you could at the time of the injury. And if the employer does not offer suitable employment, and if it's a temporary disability, then by definition that person is still disabled totally simply because the employer doesn't offer anything. So it's really in their advantage for the agency, the employing agency, to offer work. But many times they don't. So in addition to the weekly wage replacement or what in is commonly called indemnity benefits, I don't know if that's the same phrase that's used in the federal scheme, but the weekly disability benefits, the other major component of benefit would be medical benefits. Right. And tell, tell us uh, briefly the uh, limitations and or the extent that uh, medical benefits are paid. Yeah, there are no limits. Uh, the government does pay on a schedule, but it's a very liberal schedule, so we never really have trouble with doctors saying uh, they don't pay us enough. The problem is that the government will not uh, allow medical treatment on a lien because there are no liens allowed on these benefits. So, for example, if it takes the government six months or a year to initially approve a claim, the employee cannot get paid by the workers' comp system because the claim hasn't been approved yet, and that's one of the problems. Uh, is that most uh, federal employees have health benefits which exclude work-related disabilities, so they can be stuck sometimes between the health carrier not wanting to pay and the Department of Labor not having made a decision yet, and that's a problem. How about another issue that has become an increasingly uh, contentious issue on the state level, and that is the causal connection, the nexus between injury and disability, especially where we have an aging workforce or we have um, workers who have what's known as comorbidity factors. They may have underlying conditions that are aggravated by work, such as arthritis. A postal worker uh, right. injures his knee, and he's 60 years old, has been carrying bags and delivering mail for his adult work life. He's got a fair degree of osteoarthritis in the knee, suffers a meniscal tear. The meniscal tear is repaired. Do you have distinctions between aggravation of a prior condition or major cause? What's the causal relationship standard? For pre-existing conditions, there's no apportionment. So, for example, uh, if he had a pre-existing problem with his knee, but he was able to do his job, then he has the injury. Now he's had post-surgery, he's got some limitations. The entire amount of limitation is now covered by the workers' comp system because even though he might have had a medical condition before the industrial injury, he didn't have any disability. He was doing his job. So there is no apportionment uh, on, in these cases. Does the um, federal government, the Office of Workers' Compensation Programs, schedule independent medical examinations to have one of their physicians comment on either diagnosis, degree of impairment, and the connection between that diagnosis, impairment, and the work? Uh, yeah. In fact, uh, one of our complaints about the Department of Labor's administration of this law is that they usually don't ever actually believe the claimant's physician. So we get an excellent report from a doctor who's very clear on causal relationship, discusses it for two pages, and somehow it's not good enough, so they always send it out to a second opinion, um, even though really looking at it fairly, it doesn't need to be uh, sent out to a second doctor. And meanwhile, the benefits are not being paid. So that's a, another issue. And who is the, what, what is the first line of payment? Who is the individual? I know you mentioned claims. Right. Claims examiner. Claims examiner. And they have senior claims examiners and they have claims managers and they have uh, district directors. Now, are these nameless, faceless folks or at the inception of a claim, do you actually know who your claims examiner is? Yes, we, we know because they send us a letter and it has a name on it. And sometimes we know from the name whether we're going to have a problem or not. 
Okay, so <laughs> let, let's assume there's a problem, and the claims examiner is either slow in doing his or her job or does the job to the detriment of the injured worker. What's the next step? What's, where's the level of litigation, if you will? Right. Well, as I mentioned, there's no judicial review, and there's no uh, way to, for example, file a lawsuit to make the uh, claims examiner make a decision. And that's one of the problems with this system is it's, um, it's self-policing, it's self-executing, and there isn't a lot of oversight. So the employee could file a complaint with his congressman or senator, and they would send a letter. You know. uh, what we do is we go up the chain of command. If we're representing the employee, we go up to the, 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 uh, the senior and we try to convince them that something has to happen in this case. But there really isn't any way of going to court and getting an order because it's, there's no jurisdiction in the federal courts. Is there ever an evidentiary hearing of any sort? Yes, but only if the claim is denied. Okay, so, so let's say that it's denied. You can request a hearing within 30 days. You have other uh, ways of appealing, but no other way that you could actually have a live uh, you know, testimony in front of a person. Now, these are all done by telephone, but still, uh, it is a live uh, hearing. And how uh, are the jurisdictions carved up uh, around the country so that where would the claims examiner, for example, in Southern California be? They'd be in San Francisco. There are 13, let's see, no, I think 14 districts plus another one in D.C. There's at least, I would say, 18 or so districts altogether. Okay, around the country. <clears throat> around the country. So Some of those districts only handle cases from uh, overseas, for example. Okay. That's right. There's a lot of federal employees overseas. Right. And we're not talking about uh, military. We're not talking about Defense Base Act and other types of uh, right. governmental employees or governmental benefits for yeah. overseas workers. So is, is California just has the one office or one area in San Francisco? Oh, yeah. That's California, Arizona, Nevada. Okay. So you don't really get to see the claims examiner. This is something done either telephonically or via email now? That's another problem with, uh, with the way the law is administered is it's not transparent. So, for example, the Department of Labor refuses to use emails. Uh, so we can't communicate with the claims examiner. Even in an emergency situation, we you know, leave a message and they may call back or they may not. There's not an open line of communication with the claims examiner. Often we will file uh, a document that they've requested and two days later, we get a denial of the claim saying we didn't file the document, even though it's electronically filed. So really, we should have an open line of communication with the folks who decide these cases, and we can't because they won't. Well, we're going to you know, stop right there. We're going to take a brief break, and we will be back in a few minutes with Stephen Brown talking about federal employees' compensation. Does your law firm need an investigator for a background check, civil investigation, or other type of investigation? PINow.com is a -a one-of-a-kind resource for locating investigators anywhere in the U.S. and worldwide. The professionals listed on PINow understand the legal constraints of an investigation, are up-to-date on the latest technology, and have extensive experience in many types of investigation, including workers' compensation and surveillance. Find a pre-screened private investigator today. Visit www.pinow.com. Welcome back to Workers' Comp Matters. Uh, We're here today from the Bacara Resort in Santa Barbara, California, at the annual convention of the Workers' Injury Law and Advocacy Group. 
otherwise known as Willig. And we're talking today with Stephen Brown about federal workers' compensation. Stephen, we were talking about the levels and types of benefits. Certainly as state workers' compensation law has evolved, we have seen certain types of injuries or conditions covered that had not been previously covered. So I'd like to just explore briefly with you some of the more common problem areas we've run into. For example, is there a distinction for psychological or psychiatric injuries without physical injury, stress-related claims? There is not. And, and again, there's no apportionment for those. So, for example, example I give is that, you know, let's say you're, you file a stress claim based on something that happened at work, uh, abuse by your supervisor or whatever, and at the same time your father died and you had uh, a bad divorce or something at this, around the same time, it wouldn't matter because the legal test is whether uh, the work events contributed, no matter how slightly, to the production of that medical condition, which then disabled you. So, again, there's no apportionment and stress is fully covered. Okay. What about repetitive stress? Uh, used to be under state workers' comp practice, you needed to have an injury occurring at a specific date, time, and place. And we know that the requirements of physical labor do not always lend themselves to injuries that occur at 2 p.m. on a Friday <laughs> afternoon, but might be the result of cumulative trauma, repetitive stress. Is there a recognition of, of those types of injuries? Oh, absolutely. You have two types of claims under FECA other than death benefits. You have the CA1 claim, which is a traumatic injury, uh, something occurring within one work day or one work shift, and a CA2, which is an occupational disease, which is defined as everything else. Two days, 20 years, you know, that's a CA2. How about the integration with other sources? Let's say a uh, federal employee is at or nearing retirement age or might be eligible for an early retirement based upon disability. How is the workers' compensation benefit coordinated uh, with other collateral benefits? Well, you cannot receive uh, wage loss benefits from both the disability retirement or regular retirement programs uh, and workers' compensation. However, if you're getting a schedule award for a permanent partial loss of use of, let's say, an arm or a leg or eyesight or something, you can receive those at the same time as you're getting um, disability or regular retirement benefits. Okay. We talked a little bit about death benefits. If the death is related to the injury, the surviving spouse and or dependent children collect benefits. Is there a formula for that? Correct. Uh, yes. The spouse, uh, uh, my, if memory uh, serves me, it's 45% of the wages for the spouse and then an additional 5% for each uh, dependent up to a maximum of 75%. That's just off the top of my head, okay. though. I'm not sure. <laughs> is there a mechanism for closing out or settling a, a federal workers' compensation claim? There is not. Is there, for example, even on a contested case so that uh, where the uh, examiner feels the injury isn't related or it's a novel injury or a novel diagnosis, is it's either all or nothing? It's all or nothing. You prove it or you don't prove it, which is re the reason why people get lawyers, really, because sometimes it's hard to prove these things. All right, so let's talk about why people get lawyers. When they, a claim is denied and somebody comes to you for legal help in processing that claim, you go to a hearing process electronically you, or telephonically? You can. There are several ways. We don't always request a hearing um, because sometimes live testimony is not really necessary and there's a delay inherent in requesting a hearing, usually about six or seven months before the hearing takes place. So we often uh, file what's called a request for reconsideration or a uh, request for review of the written record. 
Those are other forms of appeal. Finally, if you've submitted all the evidence that you want in the case, then you can, if you still have lost the case, then you can appeal to the Employees' Compensation Appeals Board, and they're the final uh, legal authority on these cases. And uh, those are there in Washington? They are. Oral arguments or by submission or either? Or either. We're pushing them right now to um, establish a way of doing telephonic or video because we think it's really unfair for people in the western United States, for example, not to get an oral argument when they can't fly all the way to D.C. or send their lawyer there. And is the ECAB uh, the final word, or can you get into the civil courts? You cannot. There's no, no review judicially of these cases. Well, we're going to take a deviation from our discussion to sort of talk about something we do here on Workers' Comp Matters called Case of the Day. It's where I get to put you on the spot, even <laughs> okay. as an expert in Workers' Comp, by describing an interesting case that has taken place around the country and uh, seeing if you can predict or guess how the case turned out keeping in mind um, that it could turn out much differently under the federal system or in Massachusetts. So, case I'm going to ask well, wait you Wait a minute. About, can I call a friend? Uh, you can call. You've you got, yeah, you got a help button and uh, call a friend. This is, uh, instead of case of the day, we should call this the quesadilla of the day. This case involves a quesadilla. And it is the case of Bernard versus Carlson Company TGIF. And TGIF stands for, um, thank, thank, thank God, God it's Friday. Friday I believe, and it yes. is the restaurant. And poor Mr. Bernard was a waiter for TGI Fridays. And as the customer in his restaurant, before the shift would start, the waiters were allowed, they weren't required, to taste some of the food. And the evidence was that uh, the waiters would taste the food for the purposes of being able to better sell the food and describe the food to customers who might ask uh, about it. And on this particular uh, day, Mr. Bernard was um, tasting a quesadilla when it went down the wrong way, and he choked. And as a result of choking, there was a medical consequence, and uh, he was actually quite severely injured. Mm. He brought a workers' compensation claim because his argument was that he was in the course and scope of his employment. And the case was denied by the workers' compensation claims official at the initial level, and was appealed to the Virginia Court of Appeals. There was a divided opinion. Can you tell us how you think the case went, or the case of Dia went? Well, I, I can tell you how the case of Dia should have gone, in my, in my opinion. Um, I think he was in the course and scope of his employment because it sounds as if the employer gained a, an advantage or a benefit from these waiters tasting this food. You said that they were doing it in order to better ser- uh, sell the food. So there was a benefit to the employer, and it, you remember that workers' comp is, n- is no fault. So even though it's nobody's fault that it went down the wrong way, um, I think he should be fully covered uh, un- under the normal workers' comp principles, and that would be the same for a federal employee, too. Well, you really hit the nail on the head as far as the dissenting opinion is concerned. Ah! (laughs) (laughs) And you began your analysis quite correctly. There is a two-pronged test of whether something arises in the course of employment, which is during the hours that you're working, and whether it arises out of the incidence of employment. And I I agree with you. I think on these facts, both of those prongs were met. What doomed this case, and I'm not sure if it went up beyond this appellate court, But what doomed this case is that the Commonwealth of Virginia has what's known as an actual risk doctrine, which is a little more restrictive than just the furtherance of the employer's interest. And in an actual risk doctrine, compensation is available only if there was something unusual or abnormal about the particular item, for example, a piece of food, 
if he had bitten on a, a seed or if there was a piece of glass in the food, that would have been covered. But if this was something he ate that he could have eaten as a customer, eaten at home, that <laughs> at least the majority of the appellate court felt this did not fit within the very narrow confines of the actual risk doctrine. But I would agree with you probably both in terms of common sense and in terms of the facts of this case, uh, the, the, the mere fact that he was benefiting his employer by being able to describe the food should have been enough. Yeah. And uh, frankly, uh, the dissenting opinions seem to me, even though I'm a claimant lawyer, to make eminently more sense. Mm -hmm. uh, so having said that, is there anything you'd like to maybe close with in terms of uh, what's happening? Anything, any interesting developments under the federal workers' comp uh, laws or procedure and practice? Well, I, I would say that uh, the benefits under this law are not unusual, but they seem to be under attack from, from uh, certain members of Congress and the Senate. And I think it's partially due to the uh, financial meltdown that we've had in the last few years and partially perhaps due to the, the composition of the of the legislature. So every bill that comes to Congress has to be revenue neutral, so you can't increase benefits. You can You can reduce them, uh, and there's a push to reduce some of these benefits. Willig has been opposing these because we don't feel that the injured worker should be, you know, to suffer in, in that way, or nor should his family suffer because he had an injury that was not his fault. So, and even if it was his fault, it's covered by workers' comp. It's a no-fault system. And I guess the last question is, and of course we are lawyers, we do this for a living, uh, how do you get paid? You don't settle cases, <clears throat> you don't get a fee on a lump sum settlement, Yep. Tell us how, how you're compensated for your hard work. Well, there are no liens for attorneys, and you can't uh, charge a percentage. So uh, we have to charge by the hour because it's the only way we can do that. Uh, do they have to pay as you go, or can they pay when they have the wherewithal after a successful award? Well, we, we usually ask for our office, and most offices, I think, ask for a deposit, and then we monitor it and see how things are going. Um, we do like to have some money in the trust account to, to pursue the case, uh, but there are many cases where we know the benefits are going to be paid soon, and then we hold on. Okay. Well, Steve, I want to thank you for joining us today on Workers' Comp Matters. As I know there, we've probably scratched the surface. I'm sure the federal government is dealing with the same issues that the state programs are dealing with in terms of chronic pain and medication and soaring medical costs and the whole panoply of integration with other types of sources of, sure. of, of benefits. So I want to thank you. And thank if you. somebody needs to contact you, how do, how, do, uh, how do they find you? Just call us at 805-496-9777. We handle cases all over the country. Steve, thank you very much for joining us on Workers' Comp Matters. This is Alan Pierce. Until our next show, go out and make it a day that matters. Thanks for listening to Workers' Comp Matters today on the Legal Talk Network, hosted by attorney Alan S. Pierce, where we try to make a difference in workers' comp legal cases for people injured at work. Be sure to listen to other Workers' Comp Matters shows on the Legal Talk Network, your only choice for legal talk. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.